You're listening to Vinyl Tap, inside the music industry with Michael Parisi. Welcome back to Vinyl Tap in 2024. In Series 1, which I launched late last year, I spoke to the movers, shakers and visionaries of the industry that I hold in high regard. And in this new series, simply entitled Living Legends, I talked to 10 people who have left an indelible mark on the music industry both here and overseas. These people are giants of the game and are either still playing a part or they have retired. Whatever the case, their stories are both real and inspirational. This is going to be one classy series, so sit back and enjoy the next 10 weeks of Vinyl Tap. Terry Blamey is arguably the best manager Australia has ever produced. As Kylie Minogue's manager for 25 years, not only did he play an integral role in the making of a global superstar, but he unwittingly altered the course of pop music culture, both here and abroad. And while most of his contemporaries in the management world will take out full-page adverts in trade magazines boasting about their achievements and their awards, Terry was and still remains one of the most humble men in the music business. I caught up with Terry recently at his home in Mornington to try and get a real insight into the inner thoughts of our first living legend in his new series of Vinyl Tap. And here we are with the man himself, Mr. Hi, Terry Blamey. How are you? Very good. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. What an incredible view. Isn't it gorgeous? Can we talk about it? Yeah, isn't it lovely? You know what's incredible, Terry, and I've known you, and here's a disclaimer, which I must um, state from the outset. Um, I've known you for some, at least 30 years, I, I imagine. Yeah. You have an, an, an Order of Australia, an, an AM, correct? Mm-hmm. But you have no fixed address. <laughs> Too many fixed addresses. Can you explain that one to us? Uh, well. <laughs> because if anyone could see this view, it, it is amazing. It's one of the best views you could probably get on this side of the coast, right? It seriously is one of the best. And here we are in Melbourne, by the way. We're in, uh, we're in the bay, Mornington to be precise. Yeah. My grandfather bought this land in the 1940s. Right. And uh, he never got to build on it, but my father did. And that house is now gone. And then my, then my father built another one, and I built this one. So it's just beautiful. This but, is family land. But can we expand on no, the no fixed address concept? Because <laughs> so, tell everyone how you, you spend your, your year. Okay. Well, officially. And where you spend it, I should say. Yeah, officially, uh, Lynn, my partner, Lynn, and I live in London because it's where we work. But we're not working that much anymore. So every summer, and there are two each year, obviously, a Northern Hemisphere and a Southern Hemisphere one. Every Northern summer, we go to our lake house in Canada because she's from, from Canada, she's from Quebec. And uh, every southern summer we come here to the beach house, but I still have the house I've always had in Albert Park, just across the road from the Mushroom Building. And what's your favourite place? Oh no, I like them all. In, in, order, in order, in order to relax, where, where is Canada? I mean, I'm sure they've all got the different reasons, but yes. which one's your favourite? There's not really a favourite. I really must say that this is certainly a contender. Yes, because it's so beautiful here and so peaceful and so relaxing, and only an hour from town too which makes it really convenient, which means we can get back to Albert Park, which we do two or three nights a week, go to shows, go to dinners, see you, yep. go to doctors, whatever else we have to yep. do. So that's very convenient. So being here, we get the city life and the, the retreat. Best of both worlds. Yeah, but when we're in Canada, we're an hour and a half out of Montreal on a lake, beautiful lake, beautiful lake house, terribly relaxing, but that's without the social life and the, and the business. That's a place for real from. relaxation. Now, you mentioned your grandfather um, just then, because he, um, he's got a very successful and very um, checkered, is checkered the right word? Yes, I think so. Checkered career. Now, not many people would know this, but your grandfather is probably regarded as the most decorated um, army general in yes. the Southern Hemisphere, if not the world. Well, he actually has the, uh, the honour of being the highest ranking soldier in the history of Australia. Which is amazing. And, and nobody attained that rank uh, before him or after him. Right. So he's still the highest ranking soldier we've ever had. It's amazing, isn't it? And he, and he actually, this is where the land came from, right? Yeah. He had this land very early on. Can you tell me that story? Because it's, it's an interesting one. 
how he came about to get to get to land. Uh, he used to holiday down here. He used to bring his kids down here for holidays, and they rented a house. Strangely enough, I got a phone book from 1937. Now, phone book from 1937, and the whole of Gippsland and Mornington Peninsula is about 100 pages. And he's in it, but he didn't have a house. He never owned a house in his life. Well, there goes the no-fixed address concept. It started started there. Well, he was Chief of Police of Victoria at the time, and he used to holiday down here, and I think they needed to contact him, so they put a phone in, which is a very rare thing to have. So we know he holidayed down here, and also my, my dad tells me the stories. And he fell in love with the place... And Jack Tallis, I mean, Sir George Tallis, was the owner of most of Mornington, and he was, he was the world's greatest theatre impresario in the 1930s and 40s, which means he's the greatest promoter of entertainment in the world. He owned theatres in New York and London, Sydney, all over the and world. And was based down here? His holiday house was here. He was wow. based in Turek Road, uh, wow. just off Turek Road, off um, Glenfree Road and Turek Road. There was a huge mansion there, which has gone years ago now. <laughs> So, and, and then your father was also in the army as well, and he was quite decorated too, right? Yes, well, he served under his father. I think my grandfather wanted somebody he could trust. Right. And so my father was a lieutenant colonel and travelled with him a lot during the war, but also became the liaison officer between the Australian Army and the American Army in the latter stage of the Second World War, which is how he met my American mother. Yes. was when he was stationed in Washington, D.C., now, how much of how much of your heritage, Terry, from your great or from your grandfather, and then your father, has rubbed off on you, in both a personal and then business sense, in terms of was it a regimented lifestyle when you were growing up? Did they teach you anything that held you in good stead for what you became, which is in you know a, a stalwart of the music industry globally? What lessons did you learn that you could? Well, my grandfather died the year after I was born, so I didn't get to know him. Personally, I only knew him by reputation and stories that my father told me. Uh, but he was a great leader. And uh, maybe, hopefully, I picked up some of those qualities in, in management. Uh, my father was a successful businessman. He ran Camalco Aluminium in Australia, Australia's only aluminium company. And, um, and he had a very successful career uh, doing that. So maybe I picked up some of their skills. And in reading your memoirs, um, which aren't finished clearly, mm. but reading your early memoirs, um, I was also struck by the impact of your mum, or your mum had on you. Do well, you- yeah, she, she was very strong. She was American. In, uh, she worked. She was a working mother. She worked um, in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. She died at the end of the 60s, unfortunately. But so she had a great work ethic. And, uh, and I maybe picked up some of that from her as well. But also just the cultural aspect. Well, the American culture is very yeah. important in our family at home. Yeah, right down to the burgers you, you choose to eat. Still do. Right? You don't like Aussie burgers. You like American-style burgers, yeah, don't you? Yeah, same goes with coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and now the, let's, let's parlay that into the music industry. When did you sort of know that you wanted to be in the music business? How, early, how young were you? And what was that kind of pivotal moment or that cultural event or, or a show even, that made you go, I want to be in this business? Uh, I can pinpoint a specific incident in uh, 1966. I was 16. And a bunch of friends of mine, I did not know they played rock music. I didn't know they played guitar and drums and what have you. They staged a concert at lunchtime in one of the classrooms at school. And I went along because they were my friends. And everyone was terribly excited. I mean, everyone loved what was going on. I thought, this is fantastic. I'd never seen live rock, but performed by friends of mine, which means it's attainable. Anyone can do it. They, if they can do it, I can do it. And that's what really turned me on. I thought, this is, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. I want to be involved in this. Not necessarily as a musician, though I did initially. I learned to play drums and played as a drummer. The best way to get into rock and roll, really, was to be playing rock and roll. So that was a pivotal moment in my but career. But was it the business side that intrigued you the most or was it the – what was it? it? It was the entire – it wasn't really an industry in those days, but right. it, it was the entire industry. It was, it was something I wanted to be involved in. I didn't really care if I was the drummer or the manager or the roadie even. You know, I, I just wanted to be involved. I could see the excitement about it and the pleasure the audience had. And I go, this is great. Now, I never thought of that as a way to earn a living. I just thought this is something I want to be involved in. It wasn't until uh, some years later, when um, after I got my degree in business, I decided 
I don't want to get a job now. I want to keep managing bands. I started managing bands straight away in 1966. But prior to that, you did go to the States to try and further your education, right? Yes, I went to, well, I went to Melbourne University and after I graduated from there, I thought I'll, I'll go to Columbia University and get a, a, a Master's of Business Administration, an MBA. And I thought that'll help me in my career, whatever it's going to be. Um, and I didn't mind the business side of business. Uh, so I went there and I got there and it was 1971 in New York. It wasn't like Woodstock. It was the opposite. I was quite shocked. People were getting killed in the street. Um, I thought, I'm not going to... Um, no, this is not where I want to be. In fact, I enjoyed managing bands back in Australia. I'm going to go back and do that some more and see if I can make a living out of it. Yeah, I remember um, also reading in, in your memoirs that um, your first band was called Power, right? And then there was a second band... Which one did you end up managing, which got you into the business? Which one? I managed every band I was in. Everyone, right? <laughs> yes, because <laughs> because someone had to do it. I mean, what, what were we just practicing in the garage? We had to actually go out and get gigs, and everyone goes, "Well, I don't know how you do that." And I go, "Well, I'll figure it out. Can't be that and hard." And you just worked it out, right? Yeah. Did you have the help of any mentors when you were starting out? Not in that. Not in those years. But no. later on, because for me, when I was in in, in my career. I had mentors all the way through my, my life, mm-hmm. you know, who taught me the ropes, particularly how to, you know, how to A&R records or how to spot talent, even how to run a business with basic business principles. You had no one of, of you know, in that area to help you out? No, I didn't, not at all. Not until uh, I met Kadinsky in 1971, 72, I guess, 1972. Um, prior to that, I was figuring it out on my own. You must remember that in the 60s, the Australian music industry was in its infancy, as far as rock and roll is concerned. It really was. There weren't many people I could turn to. I mean, Gadinsky's younger than me. You know, he was yeah, right. younger than yeah. me. And, uh, and most of the, the stalwarts of the music in Australia are younger than me. And so it was the beginning of rock and roll in Australia, so there wasn't really anyone to teach me how to do it. And I imagine you learnt by your mistakes. Yes. And what kind of mistakes were you making in those days? Uh, <laughs> Turning up to the wrong venue with the wrong information <laughs> sheet or... I don't, hopefully, I didn't make too many mistakes. I made one mistake by trying to sue somebody who, uh, who uh, I was representing a band, and they turned up and they said, "Oh no, we've got another band instead." So I said, "I'm going to sue you." And uh, I realised it's much easier to work out something without going to court. Without going to court, absolutely, <laughs> and cheaper. Now, early life in artist management. Um, what was it like? And we're talking about a time when there was no industry for starters, and then there was no technology like mm. there is today. Mm. Um, how, how was it? How difficult was it to become or be an artist manager in a really, really rudimental time, you know? Well, it's, it's interesting because you must remember there was no mobile phones, no. there were no computers, there were no fax machines. You had the, a, a landline telephone and, uh, and the mail. And so, I mean, we didn't know there was a better way to do things because <laughs> there wasn't at that stage. So we just got on with it. I know that I couldn't afford to have staff when I very first started out. But I knew I needed an answering machine, otherwise I couldn't leave my home, my office. And uh, so I went out to get an answering machine. Well, they were, it was like buying a car. (laughs) It was so rare, so expensive, so big, I had to lease it. You had to pay a lease on that. Can you imagine, you can buy them for $8 nowadays. Yeah, right. (laughs) I had to lease an answering machine. That was the first piece of technology I had. I actually borrowed a friend's uh, calculator and uh, it started to make mistakes. Now, you can't imagine the calculator making mistakes. Was it the size of a, of a, of a brick house? No, it wasn't. It was the first <laughs> pocket calculator I'd ever seen. And it was a friend of mine, or it was a friend of mine's father owned it. And I borrowed it and it was making mistakes in adding up. And I thought, well, that covered around. The batteries were going flat. <laughs> so I thought, no, I don't think I'll use this anymore. And the technology obviously caught up to what, what you were doing. When was the time when you thought, hey, this could turn into a genuine business? When did you, when did you know? Well, when I, uh, when I returned from New York, I, I was passionate about making it work. And I did make it work immediately. Prior to going to New York, I had already been representing several Melbourne bands. Like, like who? Let's, let's talk not, about Not them. any names. You know, the small up-and-coming bands, bands yeah. garage bands, um, but a handful you know, wedding bands and function bands. Right. And, and remember, there was no rock and roll in the pubs in those days. Yeah. The, the uh, music was in the yacht clubs and the cricket clubs. Town and halls. Sporting clubs, town halls, mm. church halls. That's where all the gigs were. And a lot of them, they couldn't afford the, the big bands, not that there were that many of them around. Um, 
So I was representing a lot of those bands before I even went to New York. So when I came back, I just got back in touch with them all and said, um, I'm back and let's, let's, get, let's keep going and let's get more work. And they said, oh, good, we didn't have any work, so let's get some more. What were some of the, the bigger known acts of the time that you started looking after or booking? I, I booked them. Um, today with the internet, you can look up how to book a band. You can say, I want to book this band and I'll give you the number of their agent, usually. Um, didn't have that. But we did have Ghostset magazine. And the agents would advertise, these are the bands we look after. And I had a lot of people, like uh, church halls, the ministers would book the bands, schools, the, the school principal would book a band, and the yacht clubs would be the yacht club president. These people didn't, had no idea how to find a band or how to book one. And if I asked for a specific big-name band, I remember booking bands like the Kinetics and the Cherokees and stuff. These were 60s, 60s bands doing the circuit in Melbourne. I just looked up their agent and go set and rang them up and said, I've got a booking for you. So you're like an a la carte service. Someone would come to you and you'd go, I can get you this person, that act or that, you know? Well, it's like a non-exclusive agent. I wasn't, there any, I wasn't the exclusive agent for the larger names, but I knew how to book them. Right. And it did increase the price by 10% because I added on 10% for myself. That's smart. But they were happy because they had personal service and they knew me. And uh, a lot of people from university used to ring me because they knew I was booking bands. I go, how do I book a band for my yacht club or whatever? And then you got your first rule break working for Barry Earl. Is that right? Have I got that correct? Well, I was working for Gadinsky under Barry Earl. Under Barry Earl. But Barry gave you your first rule chance, right? Absolutely, he did. I knew Barry quite well because... Uh, and, and the company, sorry, and to, sorry to interject, but the company was called the Australian... That's what I was about to say, the Australian Entertainment Exchange, which was owned by uh, Gadinsky and Evans. Had, had the biggest roster of bands in Melbourne. So I booked through them quite often, and I'd ring Barry, and we got on quite well, and I got a, so I've got a gig, and I want this band, and it worked fine. So Barry was managing Mississippi, who later became the Little River Band. Right. And he wanted to launch them in England, or launch them overseas, but they couldn't afford the airfares. So he booked them to be the, the band on board a ship sailing to England. And he didn't want to tell Gadinsky that he was leaving to go to England. To manage them? Yes, to be with the band and manage them. He didn't want to lose his job before they went. He wanted to save as much money as he could, Mm. so he didn't want to give give notice. Right. So what he he rang me up and he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You come and work for me for $100 a week as my assistant. And I go, I can make more than that. I don't need a $100 a week job. I mean, that was pretty good back then. What actually. were you making, for example? I could make to that? I could make a hundred dollars a week yeah. <laughs> all <laughs> yeah. by myself. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, and then uh, a week before we sail, I'm going to go into Gadinsky's office and say, I'm going, but don't worry, Terry can handle it from here on in. He's been with me for the last month. Right. I said, well, good luck with that plan, but I'll be in it, and it worked. <laughs> and then from there, he worked. Uh, there was, so I was running the agency, yeah. Australian Entertainment Exchange. I ran it for a little while. And then we merged with Joe Van, another agency, a big agency in Melbourne, which was headed, well, the, the booking agent for that agency was Frank Stavala. Right. So, you, you, like, so that, is that where the first formation, I guess, of, of Premier Artists came yes. from, right? Yes. Well, this was the... Uh, this was the meeting yeah. of the minds. There's a yes. great photo in, in the Premier Artist office of a, of a famous lunch or legendary lunch, yes. which had Michael Chuck from memory, Stavala, Gidinski, and I forget the fourth person... Phil Jacobson. Phil Jacobson was the other one. And Ray Evans. They're all in that photo? Yeah, I uh, wasn't. I was no, in Sydney. Weren't. I opened the Sydney office. That's right. You were in Sydney at that time. I was running the Sydney office, and we called it Mushroom Artist Exchange. No, Mushroom Artist Coordination. So you went to Sydney to run the operation. To open the Sydney. But you didn't, you didn't like Sydney? What happened in Sydney? Uh, to open the Sydney office. I said, I don't want to move to Sydney. I want to stay in Melbourne. And they said, just for six months. Just do six months. And, uh, and uh, find someone to run it, and then come back. So that's what I did. I stayed there for six months, found someone to run it. I didn't have a place to live or anything. I was staying in my brother's house. Again, that no fixed address concept came back into play. Yeah, Yeah. lived in my brother's house for six months and then uh, said, that's it, I'm coming back. And I had found someone to run the agency. Uh, But it didn't compete against the established Sydney agents at that time, like a little one-man operation in Sydney against the Sydney agents. Which at that time was probably what Dirty Pool yes, back then. Yes, I don't think they. I don't know if they were called or, Dirty Pool. Sebastian or, Chase was a big. Agent. Oh, Sebastian Chase, and then there was uh, would have been John Woodruff, I imagine at that time. I imagine. I can't really uh, remember. The only one I remember um, going up against head on was Seb. Seb, Seb Chase, Chase. Yeah. And we used to argue about booking bands and venues. He goes, "I'm booking there," and I go, "Well, I want in," and you know. Well, I'll get his take on it in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, when you'll I, when, find out. And I find out in Sydney, and then 
PACE came about, right? PACE was formed, PACE... Well, I came back to Melbourne, mm. and after six months, it was running very smoothly. Right. And Frank has his own style, which is not my style. And although we're still very good friends to this day, we're not the same style of agent. And well, no, Frank's gruff, and well, you're, you seem a lot, or always have been, a lot calmer. <laughs> a lot more measured <laughs> Your compared <words>. to Frank. <laughs> a lot more measured. Anyway, yes, I think that's probably true. <laughs> and I, I thought, I, I don't, they don't need me here. Uh, Frank's got it all under control, he really did. And he had a few assistant agents working with him. And so um, Frank decided to just do mainstream rock and roll and nothing else. Now, our agency had a lot of other clients. I mean, we were booking wedding bands and jazz bands and piano players and folk singers and all sorts of different acts. And Frank said, no, nothing, mainstream rock and roll only. So I said, tell you what, I'll take everything else. You take mainstream rock and roll, I'll take everything else. And uh, I did it in partnership with Gudinski and I set up Pace. And you, yeah, there was the unsexy part of the business, right? When yeah, Frank very much to play so. in the sexy bit and you were Absolutely. Play. But I guarantee you're probably making just as much, if not more money than, <laughs> yes, than did, Frank yeah, at the time. Yes, we did and really it, well. We, so in those days, that was called commercial entertainment. Mm. There was a rock and roll and it was commercial entertainment. And piano bars, wedding bands, school dances, that was called commercial entertainment, right. which is why we were called Pace, Premier Artist Commercial Entertainment. And in these PACE. days, I imagine brands would, would go to an agent and there'd be a brand person inside the agency these days doing the same thing that you did on a more macro level these days. Yes. Right. And then Pace was, was a joint venture between yourself and Gidinski, but there was a third person involved initially. Well, Ray Evans and Bill Joseph were involved as well. Right. So there were four so of us initially. Right. Bill wanted to retire, so I bought him out very right. early on. And then Ray wanted to leave, so I bought him out. So it ended up just being me and Gadinsky. I By that stage, I owned three quarters of it because I bought out the other two. And then it evolved into cover bands, is that correct? Yes, cover bands was always a big part of our... Right. I remember that. ...of our work. In fact, we were probably the leading cover band agency in Melbourne. Captain Matchbox, was that you guys back in the day? Yes, yes. Yeah. Who, who else was in... Um, what can I? Captain Matchbox wasn't wasn't a cover band. They were, Not Captain they, Matchbox. Um, they were jug band. Captain Spaulding. Captain Spaulding. I took Tom Tom Spaulding, who was a singer guitarist. Captain Spaulding, I meant. And I booked him on cruise ships, That's and for, right. for two years he was on cruise ships singing to the audience, and he worked out how to work an audience doing cover songs, and he came straight back and formed Captain Spaulding which became huge, hugely I, successful I around that. Melbourne. I remember that because I used to play the Intrepid Fox. Mm -hmm. in South Melbourne, across the road from Impress magazine where I worked, uh -oh. and they were there for years. And I often wondered, who books these kinds of bands? Yeah. And it was you. Yeah. <laughs> back, yes. in, back in those days. <laughs> and then Pace, that's where, that's where you kind of like learnt uh, more of your craft. Mm -hmm. And then management, because mm -hmm. at the time you were, you were an agent really, right? Yeah. And then managing, was it was a pivotal moment when you picked up that famous footballer? Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess so. <clears throat> there, there was a, Mark a, Jacko. Jacko, yes, Jackson. That was a. I remember Jacko being huge. Yeah, it was, and huge. that was you the whole time. We've made millions of dollars. I mean, yeah, tell it, us it about was enormous. Because I, I love that story. Tell us about the Jacko story. For he, people who don't know who Jacko is, it, it's a. It's just a great story. He was a footballer. He played for Geelong. But he was a clown on the field. Absolute clown. Uh, he was a pretty good footballer, but he became famous for being a clown. And he'd pull antics on the field to draw attention to himself. And he, um, he, decided, he decided to record a record, which he did, which was terrible, but very funny. I remember it. I'm an individual. You can't fool me. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he needed someone to look after his career because he's, now he's a recording artist. And he, through, through his insurance broker, who had contacted me about something else a long time ago, I don't know what, um, his insurance broker said, go and see Terry. And so he did. Also Bob Phillips, who was the exec producer of Hey Hey It's Saturday. And right. I was the talent coordinator for the show in those days. So you're putting the acts onto Hey Hey it's yeah, Saturday? Yeah, exclusively. Right. right. So, which was great. I booked all the acts for Hey Hey It's Saturday. So Jacko came to you. Yeah. And what gave you the... And, and well, Bob Phillips approached Bob Phillips, me sorry. first uh, and the insurance guy, uh, this name I forget, I'm sorry, um, said, would you like to manage him? And, and I said, well, let me, let me listen to the single. And I listened to the single and watched the video because it was on, it was on um, a local label anyway. It wasn't Fable, was it? 
Well, it was one of the Fable offshoots. I'm trying to think which one it was. It was John Blanchfield's label, I think. Um, oh, it would have been just been or, called... Was it Blanchfield Records even? Yeah, I think and, uh, it, no? But I remember John Blanchfield. Actually, who... who well, up there, Kazali was on the label. It was Brady's. Mike, Mike Brady's Mike, label. I, yeah, didn't, didn't up there, Kazali come out on Fable? Well, maybe was, an offshoot of Fable, it, it right? It was an offshoot of Fable, right. yes, the, the label. I'm anyway. Trying, I'm trying to remember it. But anyway, so, yeah, so you, you, you heard the single and you thought, did you I, think, what the hell do I do with this? Yeah, and I thought, this is... This has got serious potential. It's just so bad that it's fantastic. I really thought that. And so I just took the ball and ran with it. And we, um, the next big break, well, the big break for him came when Energizer Batteries wanted to, uh, him to film their commercial for Australia, which we did. And Energizer Battery was owned by a company in America. Uh, I can't remember the name. And they said, we want to do the commercial for America. And then the Canadians saw the American ad and said, we want to do it, but we want the Canadian version. So we did the ad three times and got paid three times. Was there a Japanese version as well? No. The no. Japanese, we did a beer commercial. Right, right. I'm getting it confused. <laughs> yeah. anyway, filmed, so filmed, I think, with the Paran Football Club, right. pretending he was part of them and just stopping for a beer on the field. Yeah. And uh, we got very well paid for that as well. Uh, Energizer wanted us to do a tour of America because Paul Hogan was huge and there's a great interest in the Australian ochre personality Thanks character. to Crocodile Dundee, of course, right? Yes, because yeah. of Crocodile Dundee. So I flew to St. Louis to negotiate the deal and they offered us a, a weekly salary for him to tour America promoting the batteries and I kept saying, no, that's just not going to work for us because we had something unique because he was already, he'd already on television yeah, they, did, they couldn't replace him easily as the promoter, no. the face of Energizer. He already was. So I negotiated an extremely good deal, which I don't think they realised how much they were going to have to pay us at the time. And, uh, and we toured America for, well, months. And he, did he get some kind of TV production deal as well? Yeah. We got a, uh, he got a role in a Glenn A. Larson series. Glenn A. Larson was, was the full guy, Magnum P.I., which Six are million TV dollar shows. man, like all the really big huge ones. TV shows, yeah. And uh, first, a Japanese company offered us uh, offered us a really good deal for him to play the role of a judge in one of those crazy talent contests where you might get killed. You know, the, the Japanese <laughs> like. <laughs> and I was I was struggling with the concept on the contract that you got to sign this knowing that you may get killed. You know? And I, th I kept negotiating more and more. Going, I'm not sure if I can leave this clause in. And so. This went on and on and on, and in the meantime, Glenn A. Larson heard about Jacko, and so I wanted him for a TV series, and we said, well, we commit to the Japanese. He says, right, I'll buy you out, I'll buy him out, don't matter what, so we've got a great deal. We've got a great deal for him to do a show called The Highwayman. Oh, that's right, yep. Yeah. It was short-lived, though. It was short-lived. They didn't know he really couldn't act, I think. I often wonder whatever happened to Jacko. Do you know what he's doing these days? No. He did do a tour a year or two ago with... Um, the time you're speaking to her of sportsmen's clubs. Or yes, something. yes, he, we something. did a lot of those, by the way. Yeah, yes. and he would, he was, he was huge for a moment, wasn't he? Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah. I remember him being on all over TV, all over the radio, and still played football towards the end too, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, because he switched clubs from memory. I think yeah, I mean, quite a few times because I mean he was a celebrity and he he did draw crowds. Now, how did that put you in good stead with Kylie? Because it because there is a connection. Well, there's a connection that they shared an accountant. The, yeah, that's the connection, right? Mm. And the and the the accountant obviously went to the Minogue and said, "You should speak to this guy, right?" So yeah. you could you almost, funnily enough, thank Jacko, thank, thank Jacko for the <laughs> yeah. Kylie connection, right? Yes. Well, there were three people that recommended <laughs> when Kylie was looking for management, or Kylie's father was looking around for management for her. Three people approached me. One was her acting agent, who I, who I knew, and the other one was the insurance guy. <laughs> yeah. Who's with Jack and Jack as accountant. Uh, yeah, and the three of them will recommend me. So what was your first perception of the whole Collie Minogue project? What what gave you the foresight to go, I can see this being really big, or was it a case of like, yeah, I can do well with this now, she's having it, you know, she's having a hit record at the time, right? For me, there was I Was there something there? Well, I, yes, I felt an instant magic with her and the camera. I felt that it, when you saw her on screen, even if it was in Neighbours, or in an interview, or even in a still photograph, you immediately felt you had a connection with her. She had that ability to look straight through her lens and see the person on the other side looking at the picture. Mm. And I, that's what I thought was her major strength. 
And of course, she did uh, the cover of I'm a Locomotion. Did the cover of Locomotion, yeah. And, uh, and she sang it well, and so she could sing, and she danced in the video, and she danced well. So she had talent, but it was her magic that she had with the camera that intrigued me and thought, this girl's going to go a very long way. I believed in her wholeheartedly from the very beginning. Yeah, and so did you start, were you an agent at the time, or did you go straight into management? How did the Well, I still had the work? agency. So you still had that, and you managed to But I had staff time. in the agency, so right. I, had, I could free myself. I had to find ways to free myself up to travel America with Jacko anyway. Right. So I had good people running the agency. Always a good deal. Who all went on to have good careers themselves, which is great. And uh, so that freed me up to time to do management. It's because I'd freed myself up to do Jacko, I'd now had the time. You had a succession plan already in place, right? <laughs> yes. At what point, it wasn't planned, but yes. <laughs> of course, of course. But at what point did you realise that, hey, this Kylie Minogue project is actually going somewhere a lot more than I envisaged? When was that moment when you went, oof? That moment lasted five years. That just kept happening. Right. It just kept happening and happening, getting bigger and bigger. I mean, the first Logie nomination, she got three Logie nominations. And the next year she won the gold Logie. And then it, it just it got bigger and bigger all the time. And then when we went to England, um, it, it just got, you know, it exploded as history records. Because Neighbours was so big over there too, right? Yes, so that was a great launching platform, her for her both in Australia and England. And people forget that a lot of uh, big superstars from yesteryear, people like even Elvis came from, you know, TV and movies, right? There's nothing wrong with coming from a TV no, show. No, Elvis yet, didn't come from TV yet, and movies. Well, he came from, well, you know no, what I mean? No, like, movies were secondary. It, but his popularity grew and well, grew. Well, absolutely, yes. Right, right. It, it's, yes. Um, exposure on television and in movies is, is invaluable is to it, promote a right. record. In, in those days, it was almost from the jaded media in Melbourne. It was almost frowned upon. How dare this person it come from a TV weird. show? Remember that? Yes, remember I, that? I remember having a conversation with Simon Cowell. Right. And, and we both said, shh, don't tell anybody. We figured out <laughs> the best way to promote music is through TV and movies. There you go. And he said, yes, but no one else has figured it out yet. And I said, yes, well, it's our secret. <laughs> and then watching the, um, the, the recent Stock, Aiken and Waterman um, documentary, which I think is wonderful, um, just to get an insight into how those guys worked, mm. they were very instrumental in that early success, weren't they? Oh, incredibly They, so. they catapulted the whole project, really. Absolutely, they did. They, they just wrote hit after hit after hit. They were ma magnificent pop songwriters. Yeah. Like the world's never seen, really. I mean, they were phenomenal. It just successful. went from strength to strength. You know. and how so did you, quickly. How did you get along with, with them? I got along as well, as, as well as anybody did. Mm. Um, they, were, they were strict. They saw themselves as the creators of the music and therefore you do what we say. And they treated the artists like uh, employees virtually. And that, that, so that wasn't pleasant. But I always got on with them. But they were strict. They were difficult to work with. But they were so creative. They were such good songwriters. Well, they, um, um, and one, they knew the, how to get the best out of someone. So Kylie honed her craft in their studio. Yeah. It was a mutual beneficial relationship. Oh, I, I, most, I guess. Definitely, most definitely. I mean, I think at one point the, those guys had 28% of the overall chart in, in the UK and Europe, which is extraordinary. It's unbelievable. Never to be repeated again, I, I, no. in, particularly in, in this day and age. But at what point did Kylie realise that the bubble had burst and it was time for Kylie to be her own person instead of a, a you know, for want of a better word, a product of the Stockhack and Waterman factory? It, it wasn't a moment, it was a progression. Right. Um, the, the very first album, she just did what she was told, was allowed no input, starts to irk a little bit. Mm. When the first album goes number one and sells over two million copies in England alone on release, her very Amazing. first album was phenomenally successful, seven times platinum. She realised she had some power and she tried to exert it. And on the second album, they gave her very little. Right. And uh, it went on from there. And it wasn't until after the fourth album that we thought... We can't keep doing the same thing. We've got, to, we've got to move forward. We've got to keep forward, going forward or die. And as a manager, how did you um, maintain um, expectations or, or control expectations with the artist? How did, what was your role in taking Kylie f from that period into the next? Or, now, did you, or did you let her have free reign, let her have all the creative decisions? Was it her little baby and you just kind of facilitated her vision or was it a combination of both of you working together to find a new path? Our relationship was very clear-cut. Anything to do with art, music, the artistic side of her career, it was 100% her. Mm. And anything to do with business, management, finance, 
scheduling, whatever, was mine. And that was a that was a very successful partnership in that regard. So anything to do with the the, the, this, the choice of songs and the producers and everything, I would maybe present alternatives to her and do the research, or the record company would, or the R and R guy would. But I made sure the decision was hers entirely, and I enforced that upon record companies and producers and people. I said no. She said she wants to do it this way. This is why we're going to do it. Mm. So I, I backed her up, but not on the artistic side, just from a business side. But surely you knew when there was the right time to tour, when it was the right time to pull well, back, that's and business. All, all that kind of stuff. It is business, but it also can be a creative, you know, conceptually yes. too, right? Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess my experience in the music industry, you know, I, I had a feeling for the industry. Yeah. She developed a great feeling for, for the industry and for her fans and and an understanding of what they wanted and what they needed and when they needed it. She had a great feeling for that, still does, obviously. And so, um, yeah, it, it, we worked together well. Was there a particular blueprint at that time that you were using to record? We're going to record for this period of time, then we're going to tour and then repeat and then repeat again. Was there a blueprint or, or did, it, did you have to go with the flow? Yeah, de- there definitely wasn't. Um, I'm a big believer in, in our industry, in mm. the music industry, you have to be ready to jump at opportunities. And you, you can't plan too far ahead, even though everyone says you shouldn't. You yeah, everyone, I was told that, you know, three-year plans, five-year yes. plans, and sometimes you sit there and you go, how the hell can anyone put yeah. together a five-year plan? I could put together a 12- to 18-month plan really easily, <laughs> but particularly with an act like Kylie, which, who's probably exploding in other territories simultaneously, exactly. you know, you don't want to spread her too thin, so having a five-year plan seems almost counterintuitive. No, that, was, that, that would never work. The, the idea is to be open to all the opportunities as they became available or as you were creating opportunities. Because if, if it, as you say, if a record suddenly goes platinum in Japan, it's worth touring there. Something you may not have thought of, thought of before. And it's the same all over the world. Sure. And if there's a movie opportunity and you think it's going to be a good opportunity, you, you just go and do it. What were some of your favourite memories of that initial period um, with Kylie, you know, overseas in particular or particular territory? Was there a particular show or moment where you go, it's a pinch yourself moment and you go, God, wow, we are really going places now. This is no longer an expensive hobby for anyone. <laughs> it was definitely a continuum. It went on and on and on. Um, we never did – we never went backwards – at all. Ever, yeah. I mean, sometimes the number one records, and uh, you know, slowed down a bit, but we never went backwards. We, we never lost money on any project we ever did. We always moved forwards, and it, it, she's been successful since she first started 30 years ago. So it, it, it went on and on, and you keep thinking, this is great. Let's, let's see if we can keep doing it. Yeah. Is there a particular phase in Kylie's career um, that you're most fond of? Or was it all one big happy joy ride along the way? Oh, there, there were there were hurdles. Yeah. Um, what were some of the hurdles? Well, I think the major challenge was to leave Stockrack and Waterman, who had created hit after hit after hit, and then you know jump in the deep end and see. That right. for, for me, I had to find songwriters and producers, and so basically, I did that by finding A and R. I mean, you know how I work. I do. We first met when I was talking to you about A&R. Yes. And uh, I, I, I saw my role as to find her the right home in, in a record company and the right A&R guy was the most important key to it, success. It really is. And because she's not uh, – she, she writes songs now, but she's not Stock Oak and Waterman. You know, she wasn't writing hit after hit and she never has – written a lot she's written some good stuff but she's not a prolific hit writer yeah and, and I, that's what we needed we needed hits to keep coming and they were mainly written by other people and we went out and found them yeah because it could be quite daunting leaving a stable like stock and waterman and going well who's going to be my next muse mm. in, in in the game and uh you're fortunate enough to have so many opportunities thrown at you from the various record labels you work with what was the best label to work with in terms of letting you guys Fulfill your vision. Uh, that's, that's a no-brainer. It was definitely Mushroom Records headed by Gary Ashley. Right. Tell us about that, that period. Gary, and, and, and why? Why Gary? Uh, Gary was a supporter of Kylie's from before she even signed to Mushroom and remained so throughout, her, well, throughout the first 15 years of her career, I'd mm. say. 
And, and, and for context, Terry, for the listeners, Gary was there from the very, very beginning. When I, when I was um, first started working with Gadinsky, uh, I'd only been there a month or two when some young kid came in to empty my rubbish bin. <laughs> right. I go, where'd you come from? Right. And he said, I just started and uh, I'm just told to do whatever needs doing. And he quickly rose to become a major record man. I mean, a really good record man. And he ran Mushroom Records, allowing getting to see the time to concentrate on publishing and touring and managing. Um, and so if, he, was, he was very good, and he was the most supportive person we ever had. So he was the, essentially the A&R person, right, you know, the, the one constant throughout her career. He found Stock Oak and Waterman. Right. No, nobody else did. And then did he and find... Put us together. And then did he find the next muse, who was... Um, I'm trying to remember his name for Manning Street Preachers, who made the record, uh, the Possible Princess record, right? No, he only did two songs. Is it two uh, songs, right? Um, who inspired... Because who was the next person in line in terms of a muse who inspired Kylie to, to go, you know, to, to take a chance, the, the, try something fresh? The label, Deconstruction. Right. Uh, the guys came from the Liverpool dance scene, which was terribly strong in the 90s, and we needed something strong. And that led us slightly more in the dance area, yep. slightly away from the pure pop area, and we needed that break. So the, the two guys that ran the company and the A&R guy, the three of them, were fantastic, fantastic support. And we found different songwriters and used different people and had some great songs. And it was a great transition from there to, to when we went to EMI and then we had went more back into pop and that's when you hear Spinning Around came out, yeah. which are pure pop. We couldn't have gone from Stock Acre Waterman to EMI, I don't think. It would, would have been from a pop thing to a pop thing. We, the transition of deconstruction. Kind of break in between. Yes, you know? or to show people that she's more than just a popette. Yeah, I remember know? that too. That was very important. She, we had to show the world that she could do more than just sing Stock Acre Waterman's pop songs. And they provided that break, which, is, which I think was extremely important. And then she found a wonderful home in EMI, and they treated her really well, and we had a lot of hits with them. And Jamie Nelson, who still works with her in A&R today, yeah, great. he found most of those hits for great us. Great A&R guy. Hmm. I remember uh, running Mushroom at the time, and um, uh, Dean McLaughlin, who was Kylie's long-term marketing manager, brought in Spinning Around for us to listen to, and we just sat there with our mouths open <laughs> going, oh, my God. And we took it to radio, and the rest is history because that mm. really took it to another yeah. level, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. Yeah. That was the first really big hit after leaving Stockhack of Waterman. Now, she, she had confided in me and a few others in, in the deconstruction years, which were good for credibility. That's right. But you can't take credibility to the bank. It just went <laughs> next level again, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I love that line you can't take credibility to the bank. And then America. It's a missus in America, right? It was a kind yeah. of it's a tumultuous relationship with the with the United States, always, right? Always. What do you think that is? is? Is it just a case of being too big, or them not understanding the essence of what Kylie was about? There was there was a lot of there's arrogance right. with the American record companies right. that they know better, mm. and you know they destroyed a lot of good bands by trying to make them more American. Very much so. For instance, when the Dingoes were at their height, they went to America and had to re-record their albums in the style of the Eagles, vir yes. virtually, which killed them. Yes. Um, there was a lot of that. The Americans think they know how to do it better. Uh, whereas we were doing extremely well everywhere in the world outside the US. We even did well in Mexico and Canada. Right. And <laughs> people all forget around that them. all those territories combined totally eclipse America oh, in terms yes. of population and, and potential sales, right? Yes, people, yes. People forget that. So, yeah, and America never really took off for Kylie. Although well, you did have, the, you, I've got to say, her first album went gold. It did go gold, in right? In America, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and... That's phenomenal for your very first album in America oh, to go gold. And she's always done very well there, and we've toured there a few times, but nothing like as big as uh, the rest of the world. Let me ask you this, Terry, back to you um, personally. What did the whole Kylie experience teach you about yourself primarily? I know it taught you a lot in business because you're, you're probably one of the most, if not the most successful Australian manager of all time, right up there at the very least, but what did it teach you about yourself? About myself? Yeah, as a person. And I know and it's, a, it's not a trick question, nor is it meant to be a layered question. What, what did you learn? I think it gave me more confidence uh, in my abilities within the music industry. Mm. Uh, being an agent was, is a very limited role. You get gigs and that's pretty much it. Mm. Um, 
so being so being a manager, I, I learned much more about the rest of the music industry, um, especially recording and publishing. But then I also learned a lot about live performance mm. and touring. So I learned a huge amount, as did she. We both together, we learned a lot and expanded our horizons and improved our talents and experiences. Yeah, do you think much has changed these days in terms of management? Can you, can you say you were still managing Kylie today, would you approach things differently knowing what you know about the current state of technology and the current state of affairs? Do you think, or do you, would you just know what you know? No, uh, you're, you're right you the know. first time. It's changed drastically. Yeah. The record companies are no longer relevant yes. and they're often a stumbling block to success, mm. which was always the opposite in the yes, past. It was. It was. You couldn't have success without a record company. Now they can, they can hold you back. It has changed drastically. Social media and other forms of promotion are paramount now mm. and much better than any other PR or promotions department ever had in the past. Mm. And that's a, that's a whole new field, which I'm not that familiar with really mm. interesting isn't it you often wonder about those sliding doors moments what it would have been like to manage Kylie in 2025 you know or mm -hmm. 2024 you know let me ask you this because these are more hypotheticals and it's probably sounds probably sounds like a stupid question but what would life have looked like if Kylie never came came along do you, do you wonder about that sliding doors moment? Yeah, I, I don't want to. It, it would have meant but I let's, could have... Let's, let's, for hypothetical no, sake... No, no, I'm let's... going to answer you. Yeah. <laughs> it would have meant I could have seen my kids growing up and I could have spent more time in Melbourne, uh, which, is, which is, you know, something I'm very sorry I didn't mm. get to do. It took off so quickly and it was so big and it was so busy. I wish I had found more time to spend with my children. I, I don't think I could have done it differently. But you're saying if I hadn't met Kylie, yeah. I, I could have done it differently. That's th that's the only thing that that I think back on. Do you think you still would have been an agent in the music industry, or do you think you would have automatically, like natural, naturally gone on to be a manager? I think I definitely would have been a manager. I started out as a manager. I've mm. always done management on the side. When I was an agent, I always did management on the side, uh, and I preferred that. I love it. The the real reason is that as as a as an agent, you're responsible for getting bookings mm. and nothing more. Mm. As a manager, you're responsible for absolutely everything. Mm. And I like that. I like getting in the deep end. I like trying to manage everything. You know, travel, security, sound, performance, recording, publishing, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah, it's, it's, a long, it's involved, isn't it? People don't, I love it. People don't, and, 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 well, people don't realise the amount of work that goes into putting yeah. an artist on stage. Yeah. The amount of work goes into putting out a release from an artist. They just think they see the the tip of the iceberg, but the nine tenths below it. <laughs> where there's a lot, there is a lot of work, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely, there is. And you have to learn the skills of a lawyer and an accountant and yeah. a travel agent and a roadie and a security guard and all that stuff. And I even had to get involved with you know booking makeup artists and hairdressers and finding out why they were so important and all, all sorts of other skills that you learn, which I loved. I love learning. I like expanding yep. my horizons. I like learning more. And uh, now, at this stage of life, I think I, I completely understand the music industry. It's not, it's not a foreign place for me, as it was when I first entered it. It's somewhere I feel really at home. And comfortable. And yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's good. Let's keep on the hypothetical step. If you weren't in the music industry, what would you have been, do you think? I think I probably would have been a lawyer. You reckon? I reckon. Yeah. Well, you got that analytical mind. I, well, I don't mind uh, writing contracts, reading contracts. I mean, only one I know that doesn't mind reading yeah, contracts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you like I, solving. You like solving. I like solving problems yeah, very yeah. much. I've always known you to be like that, having that kind of mind. A lawyer. Mm. You would. I would. You would have been a great lawyer. I would have had you represent me for sure. I don't know if I could have lived without uh, stayed in one office and. Planted my feet to the ground in one spot, though. <laughs> yeah, true. That's very true. Now, we'll keep on with the hypothetical tip because I love this section. <laughs> now, your, your music taste, um, some deem questionable. Only you. <laughs> Me. <laughs> <laughs> but put yourself in the, in the shoes of a festival programmer for a second, right? And this could, you could go to any era, Terry. You could, you know, like, I know that you're partial to your 60s and 70s. But put together a, a, a lineup for me of Terry Blamey's Glastonbury. No. Go on. No. Give it a go. No, I can't. I, I, Just I... go through your record collection in your head, <laughs> right? In the, the one that I've heard a million times, 
and choose five or six acts that you would love to have seen on the bill simultaneously. It doesn't matter the era. And this is hypothetical. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just a bit of fun because I want to just see where you'd go with it. All right. Give it a go. Okay. And we can pause if you like, if you want to really think no, about no, it. No, no, I'll just do it off the top of my head. I would have the KLF. KLF, Massive Attack. Massive Attack. Republica. Republica. And a handful of others. I'd go for that, that strong pop dance... Kylie, which really you'd dance. have Kylie on there, surely. Oh, not this festival. This is this is going oh, this to be a strong the... dance. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> you know what? I could, I'd go to that. <laughs> Thanks. I, I really would. So, what, Kerry? One last question in this hypothetical session uh, section, I should say. If you could change anything or any part of your working history in the music business, what would it be, and why would you change it? Any part. I'm going to go with Kylie's 1991 hit. Wouldn't change a thing would be my answer. Yeah, why is that? I wouldn't change a thing. You wouldn't change a thing, you're saying? Yeah, that's a good answer. Let's talk about the state of the music industry right now. And even though you haven't been actively in it for the past few years... As actively. As actively, I should say. You've still got a great grasp on what's going on out there and the many conversations we've had. What is your opinion of the music industry right now? And, um, and from a global perspective, because I don't want to talk about Australia, because you've spent most of your working life overseas, so and you've got a great understanding of how it all works. What do you think is going on right now? Um, as I mentioned to you Just earlier to, before yeah. this, I said um, I absolutely hate Spotify for what it's done to the music industry, and I mm. absolutely love Spotify as a user. <laughs> mm. I think it's the best thing, the best tool we've ever had to listen to and disseminate music. Mm. The problem is caused by the record companies giving Spotify the rights for virtually nothing. Yeah. Which means, and then giving a small fraction of that to the musicians. That's right. What they've done is they've hurt live musicians greatly. They've hurt the actual musicians greatly. The record companies are doing fine now. They are. They have no expenses, yet they have income. Yeah. And it used to be they had not much income and a hell of a lot of expenses. That's right. It's been devalued somewhat, hasn't it? The, Very uh, much so. And people think music should be free. And, of course, then how the music, musician's going to make a living if that was the case. Yeah. And the ethos of, of Spotify, I don't know if you saw that movie, but the ethos of Spotify is that music should be free. I saw that, that you mean the miniseries, the yeah. playlist? Yeah, I did see it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. It's interesting how Daniel Leck is probably worth $4.8 billion now. Yeah, yet he can't afford to pay musicians very well. Correct. It's an interesting documentary. Well, it's not documentary. It's an actual Swedish miniseries. I found it intriguing. It kind of painted him as both a hero and a villain mm. at the same time. Which I think is true. Well, yeah, it is. It is. Like I just said, it's possibly the best tool ever mm. to listen to music. And people don't realise the flow and effect that that has for artists and for the industry in general. Now, I mean, you literally have to have some kind of touring base. Not every musician, but most musicians need to have some kind of touring base and then, which enables you to also sell merchandising to sustain your career. Well, it explains why ticket prices are at an all-time high. In fact, ludicrously high. It's because that's the only income that's right. stream left. And it's had a domino effect around the industry, and it's going to have a domino effect. It's going to keep cha- it's going to keep our industry down for a long, long, longer than people think. Yes, in my opinion. Um, I, I think if Daniel has, you know, has the guts to increase the royalties paid to musicians considerably, the model couldn't go on forever. And there is pressure for him to do that right now. And if he, and if he doesn't, I, 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 fear for the, I fear for the musicians, really. Me too. Yeah. Speaking of platforms, what's the one platform right now that we can't live without or you can't live without? And let's put, maybe it is Spotify who you just, you know... Well, <laughs> it is, actually. Also, it no, is. no, it is. I, I listen to Spotify all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I... Um, Previously, I would make, before Spotify, I would make my own playlists on iTunes and I would buy the records through Amazon, right. the downloads, mm. load them into my iTunes and make playlists on iTunes because iTunes was the best for playlists and Amazon was the best for buying music. Right. And so it's more complicated sure. to, to assemble a playlist. And I always bought the songs. Yeah. And, and you know, it's very easy to steal them. That'd be a terrible thing to do for me. And then, look, as, as a flow into that conversation, so what's the biggest threat? You say to a, you're talking to a young manager uh, today. What do you think their biggest threat is in trying to break a new act? What, what are the issues that that young manager is going to encounter as they try and navigate through this, this new industry in your eyes? 
there, there was the model of the record company was a valid model. I mean, they were greedy, mm. and they shared their their money with the artists. So, who else do you want to collect your money except for the greediest person in town? And so that model actually worked quite well. Um, nowadays, you can you can have a hit record without a record company, and it's possibly advisable. But then you've got no one to show you the ropes and teach you, and and. You could sell a record in, in uh, your hometown by doing a lot of shows and getting a lot of social media, but how do you do that everywhere in the world? Yeah, how do you make it global? Yeah. Mm. It's a tough one, isn't it? It's a conundrum. It really is. Yes, the, the model worked well, and the record companies got very rich, but so did everybody else in the music industry. So did the publishers and so did the artists, the very successful ones. That model was smashed by the record companies themselves. The other big threat, and this doesn't necessarily apply to young managers, the other big threat is, is the official ticket scalping is killing live music uh, or the income from live music. You think it's that big and that widespread? Oh, uh, yes. Yes. Every time you look for a price of a ticket online, mm. up will come the scalpers one, the first four or five ads. A lot of people are buying them through that. How, how do we stamp that kind of thing out? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm very laissez-faireist and I don't like the idea of saying we need more legislation, but may, maybe we do in that regard. Yeah. For instance, uh, California's had a rule... Uh, for many years, that somebody who's living off an artist's back can't charge more than 10%. Yeah, right. Which is why you don't get a lot of great managers out of America, because someone can't live if it's only 10% of one artist. That's right, yeah. Um, so they have management companies, and they get 10% of a lot of artists. Right. They, they could probably do something similar with ticket prices. The artist sets the price, and, and the add-ons can't be more than 10%. I, I shudder to think what the uh, Taylor Swift show ticket prices, she's about to uh, launch her, her um, Australian tour, in a couple of weeks' time, imagine what those tickets are going to go for over the next few weeks. Yes, yeah, so, well, they're already changing it's, hands at many thousands. Yeah, and as as the promoter, which is Frontier, I mean, how do they combat it? They they can't, right? No, it's it's no, <laughs> no, there's no way around it. It's not illegal to to be officially scalping. Mm. The problem is when you get someone like Ticket Tech or Ticketmaster who pre-acquire the tickets to a venue before there's even an artist announced performing there. That's the issue. Yeah, so a lot of tickets have gone before you even know who's performing and then they're being sold through the secondary market. Crazy. Which means, you know, they could say, oh, it's all sold out straight away. Mm. Well, half of them have been sold to people who are selling them on. So you can still buy tickets at inflated prices, but you can't buy them at the ticket price. That is absurd. And then you've got corporate tickets, of course, too, the big corporates that come in and take a whole bunch of tickets, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. It's kind of a vicious, vicious circle, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I don't think it's a circle. I think it's just... It's just a flat line. <laughs> it's greed. Yeah, it is greed. Now, we, we touched on globalisation and, you know, one world, because the music industry essentially is right now. It's one world. You... Mm. I say to my artists and artists that I talk to in general, your competition is no longer the other act in New South Wales or in Queensland. It's the act in Los Angeles, London, Berlin. It's become... Everywhere. It's everywhere. You know, globalisation is here. It's here to stay. Yeah. You've got to be as, as good as... as an, you, you have to be... You have to have a manager that's as good as the next manager. You have to have an act that's as good as the next act. Mm. You have to have a live show that's as good as compelling as the next act. Yep. You know, that could be a hindrance and it, or it could be a blessing. Mm. Where do you stand on globalisation? Uh, well, I think it's, it's inevitable. I also think it's it's not a bad thing. Um, the the idea if if live performance is still an integral part of launching an artist, mm. you, you start at home, and uh, and and you've got a chance. And it is harder. Mm. It is harder to launch yourself everywhere in the world. It is. So the issues still are the same. Like, how do you forge an international music career out of Australia? Yeah, it's, it's going to be down to social media. Right. So social media is, is key right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, Spotify is loading, I think it's 10,000 songs every day. Oh, it's more than that. Is it more than that? It's far more than that. There you go. 100,000 songs yes, every day. That's right. Yeah, songs, you're right. 100,000 songs crazy. every day. And out of that, you know, like you might get a, you know, 5% pickup in terms of playlisting. Where do the 95% who were yeah. not back last week go? Yeah. You know, and so on and so on and yeah. so on. And, and that's your outlet, you know. So, that's a so, major outlet for music. So for me, it, like as, your, and as, as a, an Australian artist manager, it's just as difficult or maybe even more difficult to take an act overseas and make it work, mm. you know, like you would have done with Kylie. You know, I think it's much more difficult these days mm. based on the way the, world, the world's functioning. Yeah. I mean, Lynn's been a big fan of um, 
A lime cordial. Yeah. And I've seen uh, Chuggy building them up all over the world. Brick by brick. Yeah, constantly touring and yeah. building and building. And every time they come back to England, they're playing a bigger room. So that model is still working, but it's hard work. It's hard work, yeah, but you can prepare to do it. If you're prepared to get in the van and go around and around and again, it yeah. can be done. Yeah. What can the governments do to help us, Terry, as an industry? See, I hate government interference in our industry. Um, I know you but, do, but, but what can I, they do? But I do think the, the, the official scalping system is that? should be regulated. Um, that's all. I wouldn't like to see them interfere in any other way, personally. They couldn't do more for promoting uh, our music internationally? Did you so When you were over in the UK with Kylie, what kind of um, initiatives did the UK government implement to promote English music in, in not only their own country but other parts of the world? Was there... Was there... Very little. Right. And, and I've got to tell you, the whole time... I mean, I, I've worked in England for 30 years now mm. and uh, you, you see officials from... or representatives from companies in Australia who, go, who arrive in England to sell their widgets mm. and get invited to the uh, the consulate for dinner and stuff we never once got invited mm. we li we lived there for 30 years and kylie did a lot to promote australian culture she and australian did. tourism they couldn't care less they didn't they didn't pay any attention to us at all but i didn't want or need their help really i don't like government interference in music a lot of people say that a lot of people i've interviewed in this on this podcast said the very same thing here's one for you it's a it's a sweeping statement but one that i like putting on people to get their reaction. The whole music industry is risk-averse right now, I reckon. Agree or disagree? Well, the... Um, and you can take that any way you like. So much of the music industry is, is done from somebody's living room or home, um, and they, don't, they can't afford risk. <laughs> what I say, and let, me, let me just quantify that. The major music industry... You know, oh the, yes, the, well, the, that, well the, they don't need to. Yeah, absolutely. The big end yes. of town, where 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 things are meant to happen, where artists are meant to be exported, where artists are meant to be played on radio, where artists are meant to be promoted effectively. That yep. that end of town I'm talking about. Yes, is are they risk averse? I think so. They, uh, have they because been because they don't know. They used to take risks. You right. know, that that record companies would invest a lot of money in an, in an artist, and the first album may not have been successful, and they'd do it again the second time. So. That was a very important element of the music industry. It was the backing of a record company and the, and the, uh, the bankrolling. Um, that doesn't really happen much anymore. It really, it's mm. not, it, it happens. It's not. It's but not, it's rare. Yes, it's rare. Now let's finish off with this, Terry. A young manager comes to you, looks up to you, and says, "Terry, I want to get involved in artist management. What's the two best bits of advice? It could be one. It's up to you." you give to that young person who wants to make a raw fist of it and you can see something in them what's the best advice you knowing what you know and having all the experience in you know that you've had over the last 30 40 years as a manager what is best for that young person i think that the the old model is true and some of the best managers in the world most of the good managers in the world started off just by promoting one band usually their friends or family and learning the ropes and seeing how to make that band more popular and more um, more able to earn a living, and to, to start straight away, don't you know there are management courses um, and I'm sure they teach valuable things, but there's nothing more important than actually getting out there and doing it. To find a band that you like or respect and they respect you and you go out and you make it work for them, you'll you'll learn so much and that's the best way to start. Just throw, throw them in the deep end and do something you love. Yeah, in other words. but it's actually not that deep because you start with your friends your and friends, your family. Yeah. And then but you still you'd be learning. You have to learn pretty Absolutely, quick. and you have to learn how to make it work. And there are good books and there's good, there's good uh, websites and things that teach you some skills, but there's nothing better than doing it. As a manager, are there any other managers that you've encountered or know of through your time in the business that you look up to and, and are enamoured by and go, wow, they did a great job with that act? Yes, it, usually managers don't encounter managers, you know, because we're yeah, off with yeah. our own artists. That's right. Um, yes, but there are, there are a few. I mean, for instance, Roger Davies, possibly Australia's most famous manager and most successful by far. Yes. I seriously respect him. He Tina, was, Tina Turner, Pink, um, God, who else is yeah, there? Yeah, Joe, Joe Cocker, Cher. Janet um, Jackson. Janet Jackson, yeah, many artists. Wow. And, uh, Olivia, for a minute. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've always respected him. He's, he sort of started... Uh, only a year or two before me, I remember going to see Sherbet at, at the university and thinking, this, this, who is managing this band is doing a great job. Yeah, right. 
And international? And that was in the 60s. Any, any of your contemporaries? I'd have to think long and hard. There aren't, there aren't many. Yeah. Um, Did you ever look at, say, an act like uh, U2 and, and go, well, Paul McGuinness has taken, you know... Well, well, no, Paul obviously was one of the best yeah. ever. Yeah. Um, I remember having a conversation with him one time some years back and we were just sitting there having a beer and I said, well, there's not many of us who've had the same act for 20 years. And he That's goes, true. not me, mate. I go, what do you mean you've been with U2 20 years? He goes, no. Well, it's been... He goes, no, it's 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> And that was about 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. He was a great, great manager. Excellent, yes. So, uh, yeah, Terry, let's finish off with this. You've received a lot of accolades and awards over the years, right, for your time in the business. What's the one accolade or award that you're most proud of receiving it? And, and, and you're a very humble person. Which one don't you mind beating your chest about? Uh, I, Yes, I don't like to brag. I know you don't. I don't like to brag, but there are two that I'm extremely proud of. Let's get, tell me. And, and the Order of Australia, obviously, yes. is a once-in-a-lifetime thing that one doesn't expect. But the other one was the Peter Grant Award for Management in London, which I think is the highest award for a music manager in the world, really, because there aren't that many awards. No, there's not. And they only give one a year. And uh, That's a very coveted award to, to get that one. Yes, for me to be recognised by the British music industry who represent most of the world's managers, really, um, was a great honour. Terry, you're a legend <laughs> and you're a great friend. Thanks so much for the past hour or so. Um, I'm going to put this up in the next couple of weeks. You're going to kick off our Living Legend series. Oh, thank while you. While I enjoy the uh, Mornington coastal view here from uh, Terry headquarters. Thanks a lot, Terry. Thank you, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Vinyl Tap. Don't forget to like it or rate it on your preferred platform or direct message me on my Instagram account, vinyltap underscore the podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback or answer any questions. Until next time, 